This week on the Holy Bold Podcast, we discuss the idolatry of lived experience in our Death of the West segment. Next up, I'll show you some absurd tweets, but here's the rule. If you disagree with them, you're a bigot now. And finally, we examine how modern social justice warriors think they are more trustworthy than Jesus himself. Welcome, welcome, welcome. As you can see, the episode title this week is The Idolatry of Lived Experience. Um, This is one that I've been thinking about for a while, and I apologize. It might feel a little scattered. It's one of these topics that is really hard to kind of nail down because a thousand people use it a thousand different ways. It uh, it comes out, it manifests in a variety of different ways. locations and uh, applications, and so it is a very uh, difficult topic to kind of write one unified podcast episode about. Um, That's just because it's, I think, so ubiquitous and used by so many uh, various strains of culture. Um, But this episode itself was inspired by a meme the whole thing, the whole episode, essentially, uh, the the idea for it came from a meme that I saw, um, I think, a few weeks ago, um, and it's a very useful meme, I think, just for understanding the way that culture works, the way that uh, people's modes of thinking kind of evolve uh, throughout time. And so here is the meme. I'll show it to you if you are uh, just listening to the podcast. That's okay. I will describe it to you. And I'm not actually sure, but I might be able to put the meme in the episode description. So if that's the case, then you might be able to see it. Uh, otherwise, you can check out uh, the social media for the podcast, my Twitter account, uh, whatever, and you should be able to see it there as well. So um, here is the meme. It's it's the meme. So let me describe the the template of the meme before I show it to you, so that you can kind of get the idea. If you ha- if you're not familiar with this particular meme already, so it's Winnie the Pooh uh, in the left hand panel, and then a blank panel on the right hand side, uh, and it's three layers. And Winnie the Pooh in each of his panels is becoming progressively more fancy. Uh, and then in the left or the right hand panel, you see. Uh, different descriptions of this idea of lived experience. So uh, here is the meme. So the first one has Winnie the Pooh, uh, just normal Winnie the Pooh in his red shirt sitting on the couch, and it says, that thing that happened that one time. And then the next one has Winnie the Pooh sort of fancy. He's wearing a suit, uh, but no headwear at this point, and it says anecdotal evidence. Uh, And then the third one is... Uh, Winnie the Pooh, he's wearing a tuxedo and he has a monocle and a top hat and it says my lived experience. And so the, the whole point of the meme is essentially just to look at this idea of how we have sort of dressed up uh, this this idea of anecdotal evidence or that thing that happened one time. And now people refer to it as um, lived experience. And people have tried to sort of dignify this this idea of like just the stuff that has happened to you in your life uh, with this with this kind of fancy language of lived experience. And for some reason nowadays, people just accept what we always knew in the past was like just people's 
uh, general uh, anecdotes, things like that. We probably should not build our entire worldviews and, and allow all of our policy and government and all of that kind of stuff to be purely dictated by people's anecdotes. Like that's that's not how society should function. That's not proper. But today, because we have sort of dignified uh, this idea of personal experience with with fancy language like my lived experience, people for some reason accept it as having more weight than we ever have historically in society. And uh, I think this idea of of lived experience is uh, has become the justifying basis uh, of most of the various strains of the social justice activism that we see in the world today. And I think it's also uh, the method by which the LGBTQ movement and, and the, the the whole race oppression narrative has kind of gained a foothold in the church because there are certain people, you know, who say, well, my experience has, uh, you know, shown me that X, Y or Z is true and they, we, we accept this lie that it is not compassionate to disagree with them, that, that, that it is unlike Jesus to disagree with someone's so-called lived experience. And so this has had, obviously, a massive effect on our society, and I think it's having an effect in the church as well. You might ask, like, what does this have to do with holiness or boldness? I think it takes boldness to oppose uh, these sorts of, of ways of thinking. It takes boldness to, to hear somebody's lived experience, to, to recognize the ways that that differs with scripture, differs with what God says is true and to be willing to, uh, reject it and to be willing to call it out, to be willing to expose it for the falsehood that it so often is. And I think this is this is part of our duty. I think, as I said, this this idea of lived experience is, I think, the primary way that these false ideologies are getting footholds in the church. And so we must be willing to rebuke them. We must be willing to confront them and to reject them and to say that no matter what your apparent or so-called lived experience might be, if it contradicts scripture, then it is not valid. And we reject it. But I, th I think all of this whole mindset of, of lived experience is currently contributing to what I would call the death of the West. And so welcome to the death of the West. So um, I haven't really thoroughly or succinctly described this idea of lived experience yet. And so I wanted to um, just give you kind of a basic definition of, of what I mean when I say that. And this is uh, observational from the culture around us, but I have also done um, a fair amount of reading uh, just on this topic. One, so a recommendation, and I'll put a link in the description, if I remember, hopefully I will, um, to a website called New Discourses. Uh, it's by, it, it's this guy, James Lindsay, um, and he essentially has, he's made it his life mission to um, critique this, this whole social justice narrative that is uh, becoming more and more prominent in the world and even in the church. This guy's an atheist, actually, but he um, has seen the way that it's affecting the church as well and has partnered with various people in uh, reform circles, particularly, um, to point out these foolish ways of thinking 
And so he has this website called New Discourses, and I've done some some reading there as he has helpfully he, what he'll do with most of his articles is he'll take quotes from prominent social justice academicians, people from the academy, people from prominent universities. He'll take quotes from their books and things like that and show you here's what they're saying, here's what they mean, and then he'll give useful and helpful commentary on those things. And so he's got a whole article on the topic of lived experience. Um, another one that is is highly related uh, is, is he has an article on standpoint epistemology. I would encourage you to uh, check those things out. I think they're useful. Um, even though they're coming from a non-Christian, I think that he rightfully critiques uh, many of the the ideas being presented in the culture today. So useful god's common grace is is um, helping all of us in that so uh very useful but what is lived experience or at least what do i mean when i say it i think i think this is a, a fair definition i think this is often the way that this idea of lived experience is used uh the definition that i would put forward is that live ex lived experience uh is an unquestionable claim of infallible knowledge based on subjective personal experience. So what do I mean by that? Uh, an unquestionable claim of infallible knowledge based on subjective personal experience. Oftentimes what we'll see when people make claims regarding lived experience is that they are pointing to uh, their own life experience, obviously lived experience, and they are saying that they have particular uh, knowledge that they have gained from their own experience and that that knowledge that they have is both unquestionable and infallible. No one else can, no one else has the right to critique it because they do not see through the lens that this person sees through. Uh, I would refer to it really as sort of modern Gnosticism. It's this idea that I have access to particular knowledge because of my, uh, the, the social justice people would call it positionality, because of where I stand in society, because I experience certain types of oppression that the oppressors cannot uh, understand, because I experience that. I have particular knowledge that other people cannot possibly access. And therefore, because they cannot access that knowledge, they cannot question it, and uh, they must accept it as infallibly true. So um, I found a tweet that I think is a, a good example of the way that this is sort of weaponized against people um, from some lady, Padma Lakshmi. I think she's... Uh, uh, I think she's an actress or something. I'm not really sure what, what she is, but this tweet has 56, at least at the time I screenshotted it, had 56,000 likes, uh, 5,542 retweets. So prominent. I would imagine a fair amount of those uh, retweets were probably critical. Um, so I don't know. We'll see. But this tweet, I think, gives an example of kind of the way that people weaponize this idea of lived experience. So. Here's the tweet. She says, if you can't accept your child for who they're telling you they are, then you have no business being a parent. Very chilling tweet because as um, I can't remember who the guy was. I think I've mentioned this quote before. I feel really bad because I've said it like multiple times and have not properly cited the guy who said it. So you can look it up. Uh, but the quote itself is culture 
is upstream from politics, or I think I reversed it, but uh, I think the way it's generally said is politics is downstream from culture. So this woman, she is, I think, a pretty standard example of what our culture believes right now. And she is saying, if you can't accept your child for who they are telling you they are, then you have no business being a parent. So, so essentially her idea is, uh, if you won't accept what your child uh, tells you about their own self-identity, then you don't have business being a parent, which, of course, eventually, if this ideology comes to full fruition, uh, I could easily imagine things like, well, you know, and we actually see this happening in Canada right now, uh, parents who do not accept or refer to their children according to the gender uh, terms that those children want are having their children taken away. The government in Canada is saying you have no business being a parent if you won't affirm your child's gender identity. I, I, I heard um, Joe Boot, a um he runs the Ezra Institute, which is another thing I would highly recommend to you. Uh, he's in Canada, and he was talking the other day just about how usually, culturally and uh, politically, uh, the uh, America is usually 10 to 15 years behind Canada. So, so essentially what he means by that is uh, what you see happening in, happening in Canada now, you will most likely see happening politically and, and culturally in the United States 10 to 15 years later. And I personally believe that that gap is probably closing faster and faster because, you know, in the past, information spread more slowly. But as time progresses, information is spread from one person to another uh, nearly instantaneously um, through social media, through things like that. And so I think this 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 trailing pattern that the United States has had behind, um, you know, other countries like England or like uh, Canada, I think that gap is getting smaller and smaller. So if we're already seeing this woman's tweet kind of come to fruition in, in Canada, I don't think it's very long, especially under the new administration that we have, that we're going to start seeing this thing come to or this this way of thinking come to fruition here in the United States. And so what is she saying? She's saying that if you can't accept your child for who, here's the important part, who they are telling you they are. So your child gets to tell you who they are. What does that mean? Obviously here she's referring to gender. Uh, this is actually one tweet in a thread. This is the beginning of a thread of tweets. And she makes it very clear that what she's referring to in this thread is gender identity. So essentially she's saying if you, you know, say you have a boy and that boy tells you he's a girl, if you don't accept that, you don't have any business being a parent. So the boy gets to make a claim based on his lived experience, and that claim is both unquestionable and infallible. And if you doubt or reject the claim that the boy is making, then you should have the boy taken away from you. You should no longer get to parent the boy. This is... Uh, the way that the idea of lived experience is weaponized because you get to make a claim about who and what you are and no one is allowed to question it. And if they do question it, then the assumption is that they are bigoted against you. 
that they are an oppressor and you are oppressed. And because you are in the oppressed category, you have special knowledge that they cannot access. And so this is a, a very, this whole topic of lived experience as a, as a mode of knowledge or a mode of gaining knowledge is truly dangerous because there are no limits to, to what might be considered lived experience. Every person can, can claim anything they want based on their lived experience, even to what we're seeing now, claiming to be a different gender than the one that they actually are. And we're seeing that, as I mentioned in Canada, come to fruition in terms of government policy, uh, come to fruition in terms of familial relationships. And this is very dangerous. So I think it's good to at least sort of at least basically understand where does this this way of thinking come from? What is, what is the cause behind this way of thinking. And, and you've heard me mention multiple times throughout various episodes of this podcast, um, postmodernism. And really what I would argue is that this, this uh, idea of lived experience is the manifestation of postmodern subjective epistemology. So epistemology we've talked about before, but I'll define it for you. It is uh, it is how we know what it is the study of how do we know what we know? How, how do we uh, gain knowledge? And what is knowledge? The this is the, the field of epistemology. And the postmodern idea of epistemology is essentially that uh, we do not have any genuine access to uh, objective knowledge. We have no way of of accessing sort of the real world that, that is outside of ourselves. We do not have access to that. That is sort of where postmodernism currently is. Uh, philosopher Stephen Hicks uh, argues that, that all of this can, can really be, or this way of thinking can be traced all the way back to Immanuel Kant. Uh, Immanuel Kant was a, a philosopher who, Essentially, he, he posited there was a profound gulf between the, the subject and the object or the self and the world. And, and that, that, that gulf between those two things could not be crossed by our reasoning faculties. Like you cannot truly, objectively know the world because his argument was essentially that all knowledge is inevitably filtered through personal presuppositions. And because of that, in a very real sense, we cannot have certain knowledge about the objective world because all of the data that is coming to us through our senses is being filtered by our presuppositions or even potentially by faulty um, faculties, you know, maybe your vision or your hearing or your sense of smell or your sense of touch, maybe those are corrupted in some way. And therefore, um, all of the, the data that comes to us is corrupted and, and, and we look at it through a biased lens. And so much of philosophy since the time of Kant has been trying to answer this question of the relationship between the self like you, you, whatever is the truest you, you know, yourself and the world. 
And the postmodernist answer to this this question, there have been a variety of different answers, but I think the postmodernist one is the one that primarily is influencing the social justice movement. Their answer to this, this question of the self and the world or the subject and the object is, is really to amplify Kant's claim. They, they insist that we have no genuine access to objective knowledge. There's no way that we can be sure we know what is really out there because we are so deeply influenced or, or all the knowledge that we take in is so deeply uh, sort of, I, I don't know if corrupted is the right word, but so deeply uh, tinted maybe by the lens that we see it or observe it through. And so what this does is that it leaves us squarely in the realm of the subjective. We can only know with certainty our own experience. All you can truly know is is what is internal to you. So so we were left in this spot of all I can really be certain of is my lived experience. All I can really know is is what I have experienced myself. And so that is, I think, where or how we've gotten to this point where people can make uh, supposed uh, authoritative claims about themselves. uh, And those claims are seen to be uh, completely authoritative because uh, there is no way for anyone else in this worldview to disprove who or what you are or what you are saying about yourself. And so we, we get locked into uh, this, this way of understanding the world that, that essentially says no one else can question the claims that you make about yourself because uh, they cannot know you objectively. They cannot know truth about you objectively. Only you can know that because there is this gulf between them and you. So we know where it came from, but the question I think then is who who's using it today? How is this uh, claim being used today? And I've already shown you a few examples of tweets and uh, just various things that meme, but um, I do think it's useful to look at just a few actual groups of people that that use this way of thinking or take advantage of it. And we ask the question of, well, how are they using it? In what way is this claim being used effectively? Um, to to change people's ways of thinking or to gain power, whatever it might be. And so I wanted to start first, you know, start at the house of the Lord. Judgment begins at the house of the Lord. And so um, I think what, a key way that we see this happening in the church, and this is just, you know, one of many, but I think this is the clearest and I can perhaps show you um, the the easiest example that I can point to comes from the topic of, of women in ministry in the church. Um, so a few years ago, you may or may not be familiar with this incident that happened uh, in, towards the end, October, I think, of 2019. Um, but Pastor uh, John MacArthur was at a, he had a conference at his church, and there was this kind of silly, they were, they were doing a panel uh, a discussion, and John MacArthur was one of the panelists, and there were a few other people, um, and a question was put forward and I'll be honest I I don't love the question I think it's silly I don't think it's worthwhile really to do this um but you can have your own opinion on that I don't know if it was 
entirely necessary for them to do, although I do I don't fault John MacArthur's answer when he was asked this question, but he was asked um two words, I can't remember exactly how it was phrased, but essentially um what would you say to Beth Moore in two words? And so Beth Moore, if you're not familiar with who she is, she is a a lady who until very recently was part of the Southern Baptist Convention. She was an itinerant uh, speaker, preacher, if you want to use that word. Uh, she would go around to churches and do conferences. She would speak at their churches, uh, oftentimes to women's ministries, but not only to women's ministries. She would, um, you know, she was known for preaching at churches on Mother's Day uh, Sundays, things like that. She has, she writes books. She does all sorts of stuff, kind of in the church world. And uh, she, her theology is not fantastic. It's not like insanely bad, uh, apart from the mere fact uh, of what she does. And she is very soft on a lot of the cultural issues. Um, she's not the most theologically precise person out there. Um, that's for sure, but. Uh, so she's part of the Southern Baptist Convention, and there had been controversy in the past for her speaking in churches on Sunday mornings because uh, the Bible clearly prohibits that. The Bible is absolutely clear. First uh, Corinthians 14 says it is a shame or it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. First uh, Timothy chapter 2 says that I do not permit women to teach or to exercise authority over a man. And that's referring to in the church. So there's, it's it just not, it's not vague in scripture. It's not ambiguous, uh, the role of, or at least what women are restricted from in the church. Uh, but so there had been controversy over Beth Moore in the past because she had repeatedly spoken at churches, exerted the authority of the word of God over men in churches uh, and so this question comes up at this uh, conference to John MacArthur, you know, uh, what would you say about Beth Moore in two words? And John MacArthur said, go home, <laughs> which, uh, you know, again, maybe not entirely necessary, but I don't disagree with his, uh, you know, his point there. And I think that she should when uh, she should repent of preaching and exerting the authority of God's word over men. She is forbidden to do that. She ought not to do it anymore. But how did she respond? I think we see in, in this tweet that I'm going to show you, we see in a, a, a very clear example of the way that people will use, even in the church, people will use this idea of lived experience to justify things that they do that contradict scripture. So here, here's the tweet. Uh, Beth Moore tweeted, and this was in response to what, what John MacArthur said. She said, I did not surrender to a calling of man when I was 18 years old. I surrendered to a calling of God. It never occurs to me for a second to not fulfill it. I will follow Jesus and Jesus alone all the way home. And I will see his beautiful face and proclaim worthy is the lamb. And I think what makes it hard for a lot of people to oppose a tweet like this is it seems very pious. It seems very um, concerned with the glory of God. You know, she ends with that worthy is the lamb. She, she seems very concerned with serving God. 
It seems like her whole purpose, her whole point in this tweet is to say, look, I'm going to serve God no matter what anyone else says. So so if you just read it at a surface level, uh, it, it might seem difficult to sort of argue against because, like, obviously the sentiment here is very, very good. Uh, and And if she meant something other than disobeying God directly by preaching over men in the church— this would be a great tweet. You know, if she was talking about, you know, I, I was called to be a, a good wife and mother and to care for my home well and to serve in the local church by, you know, uh, hospitality ministry or something like that. Like, it'd be like, oh, yeah, this is fantastic. And if someone else told you not to do those things, Beth Moore, you can just tell them to go straight to, you know, you know. But that's not what she's talking about. She's talking about doing something that God expressly forbids her to do. So she said, but, but how does she justify it? She says, I did not surrender to a calming of man when I was 18 years old. So she, she brings up her story, her lived experience. And she says, look, when I was 18, God called me to preach. This is, of course, a subjective claim. She is claiming that God Essentially, and I don't know exactly her story in terms of how she claims that God spoke to her, but but the basic uh, idea here is that God himself spoke to her and commanded her, called her to do the ministry that she is doing. And therefore, you know, because God spoke to her, God called her, uh, she she must fulfill it. She says, it never occurs to me for a second to not fulfill it. So what is she doing? She is making an unquestionable claim of infallible uh, knowledge. She's saying, look, because God called me, which I know nobody else can really know that because nobody else was, you know, part of that subjective experience that I had. But I know that that happened. And therefore, I'm going to do this no matter what anyone else says. The problem, of course, is that the ministry that she believes God called her to is something that God himself expressly forbids in his word, which is that women ought not to preach over men, ought not to exert authority over men. And every time somebody stands up and preaches the word of God, they are exerting authority. They're exerting authority over whoever the, the listening group is by calling them to repent, calling them to obey, you know, whatever it is that they're preaching. And so it, it, it's undeniable that, that Beth Moore is, is rejecting God's word in favor of her own subjective personal experience. And so people in the church do this. People in the church use this idea of lived experience in order to uh, reject the authority of Scripture. Or at least to recontextualize it in such a way that, oh, of course Scripture doesn't condemn the thing that I'm doing. So they, they claim, you know, to still accept the authority of Scripture, but they, they just... Uh, re reimagine what scripture has to say about the particular topic that they are concerned with. So it happens in the church, but I do think there are obviously other groups in, in society that, that heavily utilize this idea of lived experience uh, as a way of making authoritative claims. So, you know, we see this idea with, with BLM, uh, they essentially one of the key claims of BLM is that that white people don't really get to have an opinion on race issues. 
you know, the, the claim is there is systemic racism. And if you deny it, that's because you're, you're uh, white and you're fragile and you're an oppressor and you're just trying to protect the systems that have elevated you to a place of authority. And so you don't get to have an opinion on race issues because we, uh, you know, whatever group in this instance, I would say BLM does this, you know, have special knowledge that's why I think this is a Gnostic ideology, this idea of lived experience, because they have access to a particular knowledge that people outside of their group cannot access. And therefore, the the application of that is that white people don't get to have an opinion on race issues. And so we see it very clearly in a group like BLM that, that it is their lived experience of culture, even when that lived experience seems to contradict all of the actual data we have on things like police violence and, and, and all of that, you know, even when their, their lived experience doesn't really seem to line up at all with any of the facts that we can actually gather, that doesn't matter because lived experience exerts a higher authority than, than any of those other sort of objective, uh, forms of knowledge. So, uh, BLM does it. Uh, I think feminism uh, does it, especially with regard to the topic of uh, abortion. Uh, you know, you've probably heard this idea that that men do not get to have an opinion on abortion. I saw this this sign uh, online. Somebody must have had this at a, a march for uh, they would call them reproductive rights. I would call it murder. Uh, but they said no uterus, no opinion. So what's the what's the claim here? If you don't have an, a uterus, you don't have the proper life experience. You do not have the proper uh, position in society in order to have an opinion on the topic of abortion. You do not have the lived experience, and therefore your opinion on this topic of abortion is useless, and we do not accept it. That is. Uh, the 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 claim of modern feminists when it comes to the topic of uh, of abortion, and so we see again this idea of lived experience being used to exert authority over groups who might disagree with with them on you know whatever the topic might be. Uh, obviously, we we've already sort of addressed this, but the topic of transgenderism is is maybe the most glaring spot where we can see this this the claims of of lived experience. Uh, I found yet again another tweet that I think really clearly uh, exemplifies it. Uh, this lady named Natasha, apparently, she says, Loving reminder, it's just gender, not preferred gender. It's pronouns, not preferred pronouns. It's is, are, not identifies as. So what what's she saying here? <laughs> she She is arguing that uh, whatever gender that a person uh, identifies as, uh, what is the language I'm going to use, uh, whatever gender a person identifies as is not their preferred gender. It is simply their gender. It is reality. So what she's saying, look, they get to make this claim about their lived experience or based on their lived experience, and you do not get to question it. You do not get to use a language that would uh, doubt it. But instead, you must simply affirm it. It is so. If a boy says he's a girl, then then his gender is girl, not his preferred gender or preferred pronoun. He simply is a girl because he says he is a girl because it is according to his lived experience. 
And so it is this mindset of, look, no one else gets to tell anyone else who or what they are. And this is, like I said, I think this this will result in the the collapse of society because it is the complete atomization of of life. Every person is an island unto himself and determines reality himself or herself <laughs> or Z self. Goodness gracious, I'm kidding. There's no such thing as Z self, no matter who wants to tell you otherwise. Uh, but this is uh, a very dangerous way of thinking. And I think that uh, there's a few different things, obviously, and we've already kind of looked at this, but a few things wrong with it. Um, like we saw with with Beth Moore, it, it is this way of thinking, this, this claim of lived experience and authority based on lived experience is actively used to usurp the authority of Scripture. So, so you'll hear things like, even in the church, you'll hear, you see this in churches. I know I was made gay, and if God made me gay, then he must not condemn homosexuality in the Bible. Therefore, any such interpretation of scripture is invalid. Or we look at Beth Moore's example. I know God called me to preach, and therefore any interpretation of the Bible that condemns women preaching must be invalid. And so what are they doing? They're using their, their lived experience as the authority by which they judge scripture. So scripture is a sub-authority under lived experience. And if my lived experience says I'm born gay or that I am uh, called to preach, then scripture must align with my lived experience and not vice versa. My lived experience is the standard by which scripture is interpreted rather than scripture is the standard by which I am called to live my life. I think another problem with, with this ideology is that it is universally argued in bad faith. And what I mean by that is, it, it is it's transparently biased and it is applied in a politically motivated way. So we, we've seen that already, uh, but but I'm sure you've you've already seen this in society. Uh, your lived experience does not count if you are part of certain groups. So so your lived experience only counts if you are a member in a supposedly oppressed group. Then you can cite your lived experience as evidence and as authoritative. But those who have m- membership in a supposedly oppressor group must remain silent. So if you're, you know, if you're a white cisgender, as they would say, I would just say uh, you're a dude and you identify as a dude, you know, you are what you are. Uh, If you're, if you're white and you're a dude and you are Christian, then you are uh, an oppressor and your lived experience doesn't count for anything. You know, you you are not allowed to use your lived experience as authoritative. And so it's obviously applied in a politically motivated way. They, they, even though, you know, they claim that whatever, you know, you believe about yourself is an, uh, it's un- infallible. It is unquestionable. That's only true if you are part of one of these favored political groups, you know, one of these oppressed sort of groups. Um, and so it's just very clearly not applied evenly, um, and what's so funny is, you know, they, they say, 
you know, if you don't have a, a uterus, then, you know, you don't get an opinion. Or if you aren't black, you don't get an opinion on these things. Uh, except, apparently, when silence is violence. You know, then, apparently, there are instances where you, if you don't speak, then you're committing violence. Uh, but if you, if you speak anything other than what they want you to say, then you're also committing violence. So the only alternative, the only option left for us, apparently, is to uh, unquestioningly believe their entire ideology. And if you don't accept all of their ideology, if you question it or if you stay silent about it, then you are committing violence against them. And so what I want to look at to kind of end the episode is is what does Scripture have to say about this this idea of of lived experience? What value should lived experience have in formulating our opinions on the world, our political opinions, all of these sorts of things? Like what what value does lived experience have as a method of gaining knowledge for us? Um, and this really is a question of anthropology. Like you have to understand mankind, I think, to answer this question correctly. I love John Calvin in the introduction to his uh, Institutes of the Christian Religion, he said, true and substantial wisdom principally consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. So to be wise, to be truly wise, I agree with, with John Calvin on this, to, to be genuinely wise, you must understand God and you must understand yourself and by by yourself i think calvin means mankind like you have to know who we are as creatures made in the image of god what is our current status before god and, and then you know what does that mean for me in life and so uh in order to be wise we have to understand ourselves and, and that is a question of anthropology that is a question of who and what is mankind? And I think scripture is just uh, unrelentingly clear about the status of fallen man. I think the, the testimony of scripture about fallen mankind is that we are distinctly untrustworthy. Uh, and that, that any self-attestation or self-testimony that we might give is not to be accepted uncritically. Like it, there is a good and proper place for questioning the things that people say about themselves and their own experiences. Jesus himself, <laughs> I, I'm going to show you this with, with a Bible passage, but Jesus himself did not expect people to accept his own lived experience as a reliable witness. Like he, he didn't expect to be able to, to just walk in and to say, look, here's who I am and to have everyone accept that. So we see in John uh, chapter 5, verses 30 to 32, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. What's Jesus communicating here? He's talking to uh, religious leaders in uh, Jerusalem, I believe, at this point in the story. 
and he he is talking about who he is but what does he say he says if i alone bear witness about myself my testimony is not true so scripture does not teach us that we we just have to uncritically accept everyone's self testimony or or everyone's uh claims about who they are or what they are scripture makes clear that we are without exception who god says we are and so so jesus did not expect us to accept his own testimony about who and what he was like he didn't just expect everybody to just uh you know affirm oh he must be the messiah because jesus himself said he was the messiah jesus knew there were all sorts of people in his day that claimed to be the messiah there were uh, multiple even just in jesus own lifetime other other men who claimed to be the messiah and of course their self-claim their their claim was not true and so Jesus knew, look, the claims that people make about themselves are not uh, to be accepted uncritically. He says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. So what did he say? He said that the father had testified about him. So we see in John 5, 37 to 39, just a few verses after what I just read, Jesus says, and the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Jesus' point here was that the Jews were not going to be condemned because they rejected Jesus' own self-testimony. They were condemned because they rejected the word of God himself, which bore witness to Jesus. So, so the reason that these people listening to Jesus on this day were condemned was not because they didn't just uncritically accept Jesus' own lived experience. The reason they would be condemned was because they did not believe what the scriptures had to say about Jesus. Jesus makes it clear. He says, it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. The Old Testament pointed forward to Jesus. And any person who truly believed the Old Testament would believe what the Old Testament had to say about Jesus. And when they saw Jesus, they would believe that he was who he said he was because scripture, the Old Testament scriptures made that clear. And so what we understand to be true from this is that if a person makes a claim that contradicts God's word about themselves, then we must accept God's word over their supposed self-knowledge. Jesus essentially was saying, look, you can know that I am the Messiah because God has said so. Not because I say so. If I testify about myself, it's not true. But because God says I am then you must accept that I am. And so how does this apply to us? Well, when people around us in our world make claims based on their own lived experience that contradict what God's word says about them, then we must accept God's word over their own lived experience or their own self-knowledge. The question is why though? Like why, why is lived experience? Why does Jesus say that, that if, uh, you know, if I testify about myself, then my word is not true. 
Well, that is, I think, because he is he is pointing out this fact that the for mankind, the uh, the claims that we make should not be accepted uncritically just on their own merit, but there should be corroborating evidence to show that the claims that we are making is true. And, and so this is what Jesus is pointing to. And, and here's the thing. If, if we ought not to accept Jesus' claims about himself, then how much less should we accept, you know, fallen sinful man's claims about himself? Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The, the human heart is a dirty liar. And so if we're, if we're not accept, or expected to simply accept Jesus' own self-attestation, Jesus' own claims that he makes, and he expects us to go to God's word to verify the things that he says about himself, then how much more critical should we be of fallen, deceitful man's self-attestation? How much less should we trust the things that people say about themselves? Jesus, again, I think this quote is so important. Jesus says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Meaning that if, if I say things about myself that, that there seem to be no other verifying, uh, you know, factors, if, if there's nothing else that, that we can find that verifies that what I'm saying is true, then you probably shouldn't expect or accept my claims. How, like how, how is that any different from the, the boy who claims to be a girl? You know, biology does not verify the claim that they're making. Uh, you know, just the, their own behavior probably doesn't verify the claim that they're making. Uh, there is no, there's no other factor to verify their claim apart from simply their claim. They're just saying, this is who I am, and you must accept me for uh, because of what I say. And Jesus himself does not expect that sort of acceptance. Jesus points to the Father, and he says, look, you should trust I am who I am because the Father says it. Therefore, we should do the same with every person around us. If the Father says something about them, then that's what we believe about them, even if they say something different about themselves. So... If the Father says Bethmore ought not to preach, then we uh, say Bethmore ought not to preach, even though she says that God called her to preach, because we know God's word. Or if a boy says that he's a girl, we know that God obviously designed something else, and that God makes boys to be boys, and that God makes girls to be girls, and that those categories are not interchangeable categories. So if the heart is deceitful above all things, we can also know that the things that people are going to say about themselves are not trustworthy very, very often. Matthew talks about the relationship between our words and our hearts. Well, Jesus talks about it and Matthew records it. Matthew 15, 18 to 20 says this. There we go. Sorry if you were watching at home. Uh, I missed a verse there, but uh, Matthew 15, 18 to 20 says, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, the heart, which is what deceitful above all things. So what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. 
These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So our hearts are deceitful, and because of our deceitful and desperately sick hearts, the things that come out of our mouths defile us because what comes out of our mouths are uh, theft, false witness, slander, sexual immorality. These are the things that we promote. These are the things that we uh, speak of. And therefore, we are defiled by those things. And that is because we have deceitful hearts. And so the Christian Christian anthropology, the Christian doctrine of what people are and who people are or what we are like is that Christians or that, that people in general are profoundly untrustworthy. We ought not to put our trust in people. We ought not to build our life philosophies off of the claims of people, but instead off of the claims of God. God's word is a firm foundation. Man's word is shifting sand. And if we try to build our world or our life philosophies, our worldviews on the claims of people and their lived experiences, our, our houses will collapse. As Christians, we must reject any so-called lived experience claim that contradicts God's word or the way that God defines justice. You'll notice I've connected this episode pretty closely to this, this whole, the whole social justice movement, because that is the primary movement that uses this, this language of lived experience and, and what they're doing in almost every single instance is that they're saying, look, my lived experience proves that there is this form of injustice. And because my lived experience proves this form of injustice, then what you need to do is change your actions or change your politics or change your policies in order to uh, affirm, in order to uh, help, you know, in whatever way they would define that, uh, me. And this is not the way that God defines justice. They would say that is justice. You know, you hear the claims of the oppressed and you simply meet their demands. That is justice. But that is not how God defines justice. Justice in God's word is not vague. It is not, uh, it is not um, corporate, but instead justice is applied individually. And so if somebody sins against you or commits a crime against you, then you may seek justice on the evidence of two or three witnesses against that person. You may bring that before, you know, the judge and the judge can adjudicate between you and, and the person you are accusing and they can find out was there actual injustice on the basis of evidence on the basis of witnesses. That is how justice is done in in God's word that is what he promotes as justice it is individual it is specific but in the social justice movement it is it is amorphous it is it is corporate it is one people group against another people group and this is not the way that God defines justice and the primary way that they justify the this this mentality regarding justice is through lived experience claims. And so 
We have to be bold enough as Christians to question the so-called lived experience of people. I'm not saying you just reject it outright every single time, but we must not be so afraid uh, of what they'll think about us to even ask for proof. And that's the problem is that so often nowadays, if you even ask for proof, apparently you are a bigot. You know, if you don't just uncritically accept whatever they claim, then you are a bigot. And we as Christians must accept the fact that the world is going to think that we are bigots because we hold to God's standard of justice, which is that there must be proof, there must be witnesses, uh, and then only once the claim has been established as true, then we apply justice. Then we, uh, you know, punish the evildoer. But until then, until we've proven the, that the claim is true, we do not simply accept it. But that is not what the world wants right now. You know, you've heard this phrase, believe all women. You, you saw this with Brett Kavanaugh as he was being brought on to the Supreme Court. That, that justice apparently simply demanded that you just believe the, the claims of, you know, this woman who was accusing Brett Kavanaugh and, and proof didn't matter. Uh, to the court of public opinion, you know, it did not matter what evidence could be brought forward to support this claim. You simply must accept it because she is a woman and he is a man. Apparently she is oppressed and he's an oppressor. And therefore, uh, her lived experience is, uh, it is evidence enough to completely ruin this man's life. Now, we're grateful that in that particular instance, Things went, you know, eventually turned in favor of Brett Kavanaugh and he was appointed to the Supreme Court. But that is the way that things are going. And that is not biblical justice. And so we we must not accept this, this idea of lived experience as a basis for justice in the world. It is not. So um, thank you for, for listening this week. I hope that we can... Uh, as a church, begin to reassert uh, the authority of God's word, even over lived experience, because God's word is supreme and lived experience is not. <laughs> lived experience is uh, subjective and personal and often unverifiable, and therefore it cannot hold in our minds the same spot of authority that God's word holds. So, I hope that's been helpful for you. Um, thank you so much for tuning in. I would love it if you would follow the podcast uh, or share the podcast or follow me on Twitter or follow the fa or follow the Facebook page for the podcast. Um, thank you so much for tuning in. Really grateful to you for doing that. I hope that you have a, a great rest of whatever day you listen to this. Mm -hmm.